And one thing that's obvious as you read through the beginning of the story of the Bible is that you realize that it, the Bible is telling a story. It is, in fact, a story that God is telling. It's a true story. It's not a made-up story. It's not a fake story. It's a true story, but it's a story. And as such, there's a logical progression to it, right? Stories have beginnings and middles and ending. There's an order in the way that you tell a story. And, and, and in the story of the Bible, you can't just jump into the middle of it and get it. Right? You, there's, you, you, you need the context. You need to know what happened in the beginning in order to make sense of the middle and the end. So in the beginning of this story, we encounter God. Right? The main character, the most important character of the story, the author of the story, we encounter God. And we begin to learn what God is like. And we learn that God is both sovereign, all-powerful, right? There's nothing He cannot do. He is all-powerful. But we also learn that He is personal, loving, right? Both of those things at the same time. And we learn that God has made the universe and he has made us in his image. And it's explained in the Bible that our misery, the pain that we feel in this life, right? The challenges and the hardship and the pain that we feel in this life, every life experiences a certain degree of misery, right? Everyone does. What we learn in the Bible, though, is that the misery that we experience in this life is a result of our rebellion, right? We own that. That's a result of decisions that we made, actions that we took. And despite the fact that our God is loving, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, we're told, despite that fact, our rebellion against God provokes God's righteous wrath. He's loving, but he's also holy. And he responds to disobedience and sin and evil appropriately with wrath, with judgment. But God, precisely because love is at the very essence of his character, he took the initiative to provide a solution to that problem of our misery. He prepared for the coming of his own son by raising up a people, right? Before the son came. There's a pre-story to before the son came. Right? He, God raised up a people. God entered into a covenant relationship with that people. God initiated that. He established with this people a, a, a temple and a worship system and a sacrificial system and a priesthood. And, and he raised up kings to lead them and prophets to guide them. All of this, all of these things that God did in his interactions with the people of Israel were to teach us what he is like. His character is on display in the way that he relates to Israel. And all of those actions were designed to point forward to the coming Savior, right? It's all part of the same story. There's a purpose to the early part. It's preparing for what's to come. God's preparing for the arrival of his Son. Eventually in the story, the Son does come. He incarnates. He's born of a woman. And the purpose of this original arrival, this original mission, is not to judge. He doesn't come to judge. He comes to save. He dies on behalf of his people, dies for them. And then he defeats death. He raises up from the grave and, 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 and he returns up to heaven, seated at the right hand of his heavenly Father. And then he sends, God sends the Holy Spirit to his people as a guarantee of the gift of eternal life that we've received. And he also sends the Spirit to empower his people 
to live the kind of righteous life that we could never live on our own, right? We need help, and help is what we get. And he commissioned his people not only to believe the gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to believe it, but he also commissioned his people not just believe it, but proclaim it, speak it, let others know that all the nations might hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, what men and women must do in response to the gospel is repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ for their hope of eternal life. The alternative to that is to receive the wages of sin, to receive the wages of our rebellion, which is eternal death and separation from God. And so Jesus said that this message is to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Let everyone know, and sometime thereafter, after the message goes to the end of the earth, Jesus said he's going to come back again and establish his kingdom forever. Now, that's, that's the big picture. That's the timeline. That's the storyline. Where do you and I, where does this moment in history, where does it fit in the story? If you mapped it out on a timeline with creation at the beginning and the return of Christ and the establishment of the new heaven and new earth at the end, where would you place our little moment, our eye blink of a dot that represents our life? But we find ourselves living in the era that the Bible refers to as the last days. The last days, I don't know where your mind goes when you hear that, kind of a dramatic phrase. The last days is a broad category that the Bible uses to refer to the whole time between Christ's ascension back up to heaven, where he is now, and his return to establish his kingdom. That whole span is called the last days. That's the time that we're living in. The era when the Holy Spirit has been sent to inhabit the people of God, to empower us to live righteously, and to empower us to proclaim the gospel. Okay, that's the twofold task that we've been entrusted with during our short moment on earth, right? Our short moment when we're on the stage during this story. To live lives of faithful obedience to God and to proclaim the good news of God's kingdom to others, right? That's what we're supposed to do. And the sermon this morning focuses on that second part, that proclaiming the gospel part, evangelism. So to use the image from the Lent series this week, we should be, we've got this living water, this amazing, beautiful, satisfying, refreshing living water. Our calling is to be offering cups of living water to a world that's dying of thirst. That's what we'll talk about this morning. We're in the Gospel of Luke still. We've been here for a couple weeks now. Luke 10, and I'm going to read verses 1 to 20. Luke 10, 1 to 20. But before I do, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, here we are. Here we come before your word, words that you spoke, words that are true and powerful, words that are relevant to our lives, words that are convicting and a bit challenging and hard to embody and live out. And so I'm, I'm praying that you'll help us to understand what, what you said and what you meant. But I also pray that by your Spirit, you'll empower us to obey it. Not one of us, not, not one human being in the world ever is above your word or is beyond your word. We're all under it, under the authority of your word. So help us to understand it 
and to apply it. In Christ's name, your name. Amen. Okay, Luke 10. I think your bulletin says 1 to 24, but I'm just going to read 1 to 20. Luke 10, 1 to 20. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our own feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. And I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. And the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. I want us to look at three verbs from the text that will frame our meditation on the text. Three verbs that kind of drive this commission and drive this story. The three verbs are pray, go, and rejoice. Okay? All verbs found in the passage, found on the lips of Jesus. Pray, go, and rejoice. Those were verbs that he spoke to these disciples that he commissioned, these 72. But they're also verbs that he speaks to us that we need to do as well. So the first one, pray. First thing we need to notice is that Jesus does not say, look, there's a ton of work to do and the odds are against you. It's going to be hard work, so get out there and get to work. Get at it. That's not how he leads. Instead, what he says is there's a ton of work to do. The odds are against you. It's going to be hard work, so pray. Pray. The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few, okay? It's a hard job. It's big work. Therefore, pray. Pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send workers into the harvest. 
Right? I think it's so important that Jesus leads with prayer when talking about engaging in the work of the kingdom. That means that individuals or churches or ministries that put the, the emphasis on themselves and their effort and their programs have missed the point, which is so easy to do. Right? How many, how many minutes a day do you think that the average Christian prays? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, my guess, though, if we did somehow know, it, it would be disheartening, would it not? Do you think? How, how, about, how about a more question, personal question? How many minutes a day do you pray? It's easy to see, isn't it, how prayer gets pushed down low on the priority list? Right? Be, you, the reason is because doing things feels more productive than praying, right? Doesn't it? So if your schedule gets too busy, if you've got too many things to do, it's pretty easy to justify shortening or removing your personal prayer time. That just doesn't feel as productive. If your specific desire is to see the gospel proclaimed in the community, which is a great desire, right? What a, what a godly desire. It's so easy, though, to take that desire and to immediately give your attention to your works, your action, come up with a plan, execute your plan without spending a whole lot of time in prayer. And here's the thing, you can do it. Let's be honest, you can do it. You can build a big church through the strength of your own efforts. Happens all the time. You get a charismatic leader, you get a good multimedia presentation, you have a fun children's ministry, you have good marketing, and that's pretty much all it takes. I've seen it done over and over. But that method, that way of building a church, is diametrically opposed to the method that Jesus gives us in this passage, right? I mean, he just spells it right out. He says, there is an overwhelming task ahead of you, therefore, pray earnestly, right? That's how this works. You've got a massive job. You're, 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 you're way out of your depth. So, pray. Pray. I'm reminded of that quote I heard from Martin Luther. Maybe you've heard it. It's so helpful. I think of it all the time. It's reported um, that one time he was asked, what, what are your plans for tomorrow? And his answer was, work, work, work from early until late. I have so much work to do. In fact, I have so much work to do tomorrow that I'm going to spend the first three hours of the day in prayer. Right? How, how many of us approach busy days like that? That's the kind of attitude that Jesus is commending here. He's, he's not shy about letting us know the task is monumental. It's big. It's a big job. Therefore, don't, don't try to do it on your own. We need to learn to lead with prayer. Now that assumes that we care about the mission. That assumes that we actually desire to proclaim the good news and to see a good harvest reaped for the glory of God. If we don't care, if we're indifferent to that, if we're just so self-focused that we're, we're just glad that we're part of God's family and don't really care if anybody else is, well then of course we're not going to be on our knees praying for the Lord to send laborers into the harvest. But Jesus expects that his followers will be the kind of people who do care. That we will be the kind of people who look out on that field and see the plentiful harvest and are both excited and overwhelmed by the task that lies ahead. Right? 
Do, do, do you feel that when you look out on the field of the world? Well, then we should be on our knees in a posture of dependent prayer. That's the first thing is to pray. Second, the second verb right after we pray, then, then we're moving, right? Pray and then go. Go. Notice the connection there. Jesus says, pray earnestly that the Lord will send workers, right? That's our prayer. Pray for workers. And then the next word of his mouth, out of his mouth is, now go be a worker. You just prayed for it. Now go do it. So we pray for workers, and then we become one of the workers that we're praying for. Jesus does not set up a distinction where some people pray, some people go. Everyone prays, everyone goes. It's not that we have prayers and proclaimers. It's not that we have stayers and goers. Everyone goes out into this field for this harvest. Everyone. Now, it's true, some people pick up and they go overseas. They go as cross-cultural missionaries. That's not everyone's calling, but some people do that, and that's a beautiful and wonderful calling. Others go out into the local field right here. But everyone participates in this harvest. Everyone. This is a community-wide family event, a family harvest. Nobody stays. Nobody defers. Nobody says to the master, well, you know what? Harvesting is not really my thing. Okay, so you can send the others out in the field if you want. I'll do the inside jobs. That's my thing. Nobody says that. Everybody gets to share in the joy of bringing in the harvest. It's like the food grains harvest. You've been there? Can you picture it? All those combines out there, all harvesting at once? That's kind of what this is like. We all go out there together. We all harvest together, all at once. And, 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 and by the way, Jesus says, when you go, you'll be like sheep, and you'll be in the middle of wolves. Just so you know, just a heads up, you're sheep and you're going into the middle of wolves. But go. Why? Does he not know that wolves eat sheep? <laughs> Does he not know that the sheep are not really equipped to defend themselves or to fight back? Does he not know that sheep in the midst of wolves are like the definition of helpless? Why go if you're going to be a sheep in the midst of wolves? Well, because weakness is an asset if dependence is the goal, right? Jesus is perfect, purposely saying to us here, I'm sending you right to the place where you will be weak. I am strategically taking you out of your comfort zone and putting you in a place where you will be uncomfortable and weak and a target. You will be vulnerable and you will not have enough strength to defend yourself, but it's going to be okay because I will be your strength. That's what he's saying here. I'm pretty sure that's what this stuff about don't take any money and don't take a knapsack and don't take sandals is all about. He's not saying that suitcases and sandals are evil. He's saying that when you embark on this journey, when you go into this harvest field, do it in a way that acknowledges and celebrates your dependence on me. Okay? Don't try to do this on your own strength. Don't try to provide for your own needs. In fact, if there's anything that would tempt you to do this in your own strength, get rid of it. Because I want you trusting, on, trusting me. See, Jesus could have chosen the strong in the world to accomplish his mission, but he didn't. He chose the weak. He chose us. And it's when we get out into that harvest field and when we find ourselves actually surrounded by wolves, 
that God is right there amongst us. And we discover that even though we are just sheep, we carry with us the power and the resources of the great shepherd. He didn't send us empty-handed. He sent his spirit. Before going back up to heaven, remember? Final words before the ascension. We hear them all the time because I always say them when we do a baptism. Right? He says, all authority, all of it, all authority in heaven and on earth. There's no authority anywhere else. I have it all. It's been given to me. Go, therefore. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. I got the authority. You go. So often, the way that we speak and the way that we pray make it clear that we don't really believe that we possess all the authority of Christ himself. And I believe that the Lord wants to remind us, his people, his sheep, that in fact, we do. We do. It's ours. He's given it to us. He has anointed and empowered us with his Holy Spirit to proclaim his gospel message. And we should expect that the proclaiming of that message will result in a harvest to the glory of God. Not because we're so great, but because he is. When I was about 13, my family made a trip to London. We had a, my aunt um, lives there and was getting married, and so we treated it like kind of a family reunion, and everybody went to London for the, for the wedding. We're there. My dad um, and my older brother, Matt, and I, he gives us each a little bit of money. I don't know, like five pounds each or something. And he says, just go out and explore London. Have fun. So my brother and I were wandering around London, and my brother actually did what my dad said. He, he did all the things. He, used, he spent his whole five pounds. He bought like a bag of roasted chestnuts from a vendor, and he paid the mission to like walk up this old ancient tower and get a view of the city. He did, he did the tourist stuff that you do. I didn't do any of that. I couldn't bring myself to spend any of the money in my pocket. I couldn't believe it. Here we are in a foreign country. I have this is not a dollar. This is a pound. This is foreign money. I don't want to waste it. I don't want to spend it. So I shoved it in my pocket and did nothing the whole day. Nothing. Lots of Christians live their whole life like I did that day, my big day in London, when I had the money, but I did nothing. Lots of Christians have the treasures and the riches and the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit dwelling right within them, and they never pull him out of their pocket. They just hoard those things. They, 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 they never use them. They never give them. They never spend them. They never engage. Listen, the gospel is meant to be shared, not stuffed in our pocket and hoarded, right? Good news is meant to be proclaimed. Good news is meant to be spoken, right? It wants to get out. It wants to spread. And we miss out on that when we hoard these things for ourselves. Again, to go back to the image of Jesus and as, as living water, right? Water, he, that's a purposeful metaphor. That's not an accident. Water is one of the most basic necessities for life, right? And it is a limited, finite resource. Any situation where there's a water shortage and there's human beings there immediately becomes a crisis because humans need a steady supply of clean water in order to live. Jesus is the life-giving living water. And the good news is there's no, there's no shortage of this living water. There's an infinite and unending supply, right? We don't need to just bring our little plastic container and get it filled and then hoard it and be careful with it. 
It'll never run out. But despite the abundance of the resource, many people in the world are dying of thirst. They don't have it. And part of our calling as Christians, part of our divine mandate, is to share the living water of Jesus Christ with all the thirsty people in the world who need it. And again, this is not a calling on a particular subset of Christians. We all have the living water. We all have it. And we all know people who don't. We all know people who are thirsty. And so we should all be praying for and looking for opportunities to share this water with those who need it. Okay, that's the go part. Sharing the water, spreading the water, proclaiming the good news. Here's the final verb. Rejoice. This is a, this is a joyful commission. Right? This is something to rejoice about. I find this last one such a such a helpful safeguard for us because it would be so easy for us to get focused on the wrong thing. What happened was the, disciple, the disciples came back and they're amazed, right? Hey, th this actually worked. <laughs> the thing that you said would happen, happened, right? It was amazing. It was incredible for them to be ambassadors for God, to be proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near, to be pronouncing peace on people's households, right? That's a lot of power. That's a lot of authority. Healing the sick. Wow, right? That's crazy. That's incredible. They're fired up. They come back. They're full of joy. They say, hey, Lord, even the demons... You're not going to believe this. Even the demons were subject to us in your name. They're pumped up. They like this authority thing. They like being ambassadors for Christ. Look at what we did. Aren't you proud of us? Look at how effective we were in fulfilling our assignment. And Jesus responds by confirming what they're saying. He's like, yep, it's powerful, right? He says, yeah, the demons are subject to you. Because I've given you authority and power over the enemy. And ultimately, nothing can hurt you. But, he says, nevertheless, don't let that be the ultimate cause of your rejoicing. If that's what you're rejoicing in, then you've missed the main point. You should be rejoicing that your names are written in heaven. It's easy to see how these 72 were tempted to be impressed with themselves and all the work that they had accomplished. And so Jesus reminds them, okay, but don't rejoice in yourselves. Don't rejoice in the gifts. Don't rejoice in your authority. Rejoice in God. Rejoice in the fact that your names have been written in heaven. By grace, you have inherited eternal life, and you will spend eternity with God in heaven. Rejoice in that. See, because our rejoicing then is not contingent on our circumstances. And our rejoicing is not contingent upon the response that we get when we offer people the living water, right? That's in God's hands. That's not up to us. Our rejoicing is based on the fact that our names are written in the book of life, that we are blood-bought children of God, and that nothing can ever change that or take that away from us. So if, at the end of this sermon now, if you're not convinced, right, that happens, come to the end of a sermon and you're just not buying it, you're not convinced, you're saying to yourself right now, well, that's what he thinks. <laughs> but I am seriously never under any circumstances going to tell anyone else about Jesus. Surely somebody in this room is thinking that. I'm not doing that. I'm not telling people about Jesus. If you're thinking that or if you're feeling it, can I just gently ask, why? Why? Why not? We're the ones with the water in this world. Right? We're the ones 
with living water in a dehydrated world. Right? Surrounded by people dying of thirst. Why aren't we more bold spreading this blessing around? It's not going to run out. Why aren't we more quick to tell unbelievers about our blessed Savior? What is stopping us? Well, I know. I know. I'm not confused. I know why it's hard. I know all the reasons of why we don't share our faith more readily. I know why it's difficult to tell people about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I, I get it. But that's exactly what we need to do, according to the words of our Savior. That is his method. That is his plan for getting the gospel, the message of the good news, out to the world. And this is why we need to do, we do, we need to do these three verbs found in our passage today. We need to pray. We need to actively pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into the field to bring in the harvest. And then we need to go into the field ourselves and look for thirsty people with which to share this living water. And then we need to rejoice. Rejoice all the time, every day, that our names, by grace, have been written in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for including us in your plans for the world. Thank you that this inclusion of us is not a make-work project. It's not something that you made up just to keep us busy, but that you have invited us to actually participate in the building of your kingdom to the glory of your great name. You have invited us to do that, and you have equipped us with the power that we can do it. And so I pray for us, Lord, that we would step into that commission faithfully, boldly, humbly, wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Lord, we cannot do this on our own strength, but that's one thing you haven't asked us to do. You've given us your spirit, and maybe we walk by your spirit. Give us words to speak. Give us eyes to see the opportunities when they come, and feet shod with the gospel that we might walk through those doors and take those opportunities to the glory of your name. Amen.